0: James 2, 1 through 17. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal laws found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are looking at the big questions, the big objections. And obstacles to faith in God and especially to faith in Jesus and Christianity. And uh, this week we're looking at something um, that's actually one of the biggest objections uh, to faith that I encounter when I talk to people. You know, I actually, in preparing for this series, Uh, I was polling people, I would would go around and I'd ask people, hey, tell me your top three objections, your top three obstacles to faith in Christianity. And by far, um, one of the most common objections and one of the things that people mentioned first is uh, the objection of the hypocrisy of Christians. Uh, In other words, many people look back at the history of Christianity, they see atrocities like the Crusades or the Inquisition, where you have Christians killing thousands of people in the name of Jesus. Or they would look, even in our modern age, you look at the church and the church is filled with people who are going to church, even people who are having leadership roles in the church, and, and you look at people like this. And you see them saying things or doing things that are immoral or judgmental or intolerant. They're abusive and oftentimes just downright evil. And on top of that, a lot of times you'll see them doing and saying these things explicitly in the name of Jesus. Um, And even at the most basic level, a lot of times, uh, you know, many people um, have had experiences in church. Maybe even some of you grew up in a church environment where, I mean, let's just say you weren't well cared for. Um, Asking questions was prohibited. Um, If you looked or acted differently, maybe you were excluded. Or um, if you were struggling with something, maybe you were ignored. Or if you were struggling with something that was taboo, maybe you didn't feel like you could be honest enough to share what you were going through because you felt like you'd be shunned or persecuted by the other people in the church. And if you talked about any of this stuff openly, you run the risk of being dismissed or maybe even kicked out. The church has been filled with hypocrisy and moral failure. And at every single level for centuries, people have objected, objected to Christianity because of the hypocrisy and the moral failure that exists inside of the church. And they've said that, that we cannot possibly believe in Christianity or faith in Jesus because of the hypocrisy and the moral failure that we see in the church. This is one of the biggest objections, the biggest arguments against faith in Jesus. What do we say about it? This passage that we just read actually gives us a framework for processing this question, and I want to look at it under four headings this morning. Uh, We're going to see the problem of hypocrisy. We're going to see the wrong solution to that problem. Uh, Next, we'll see the right solution, and lastly, we'll see the power for that solution. Okay, we're going to see the problem. The wrong solution, the right solution, and the power for that solution, okay? First, the problem. And, you know, here it is. Let's just say it again. What do we say about hypocrisy in the church? The very first thing we should say is it's true. You can see it right here in this passage, right? James is writing to a local church. Um, They were treating rich people with favoritism, but they were dishonoring the poor people that were coming to them in the church. And so you notice what James calls it in verse 4, discrimination. In fact, he tells them you have become judges with evil thoughts. I mean, think about what James is saying to the church. He's saying the church itself is filled with discrimination and evil. Whenever hypocrisy appears in the church, we have to name it and address it with humility and honesty and repentance. Because listen, there There are weaker and stronger forms of this argument. I think we should address the strongest form of the argument. You know, the weaker form of the argument says, you know, it takes everybody who claims to be a Christian and then just lumps them all together in one group and and just dismisses the whole of Christianity on the basis of those people. I mean, this happens all the time, but it doesn't take much reflection to realize that the church is going to be filled with all kinds of people who say they're Christians but really aren't. You know, just because you have a little fishy bumper sticker on your car doesn't make you a Christian. (laughs) Therefore, to look at people who say that they're Christian and do horrible things and then dismiss or reject Christianity on the basis of that doesn't make much intellectual sense. It's a weak form of the argument. I say we should look at the very strongest possible form of the argument because the reality is that there are many people in the church who are real Christians... They have had an encounter with the truth that is in Jesus. They have given their lives to Jesus. They are seeking to worship and serve Jesus to the very best of their ability. And yet when you look at their lives, their lives don't look any different from the rest of the world around them. The way they use things like sex, money, and power doesn't look any different from the rest of the world, just as consumeristic, just as materialistic. There's no difference. And so the world looks at these Christians and looks at the world and says, what's the difference? I don't see any difference at all. On top of that, and even worse than that, the church is filled with Christians who maybe on the outside look very pious, very moralistic, they're obeying the rules, they're doing you know, what we would call good things, and yet at the very same time they're doing things that we could simply call and should call wicked. And they're doing it explicitly in the name of Jesus. So for instance, not only has the church, and when I say church, I'm specifically talking about the white evangelical church because, listen, let's just confess our own sins, okay? And not someone else's. Um, Not only has the church failed to fight against racism and segregation in this world, the church as an institution has been one of the places that has actually served to, to continue and to preserve unjust racial systems in this country. Even to this day, the church continues to be a place that is very difficult for racial minorities and people of color. They're not honored. They're not welcomed. They're not empowered for leadership. And if anybody says something about it, they're dismissed or rejected. So for instance, I was listening to a podcast recently called Truth's Table. I commend it to you. Uh, Mary's uh, sister, Michelle, is actually one of the co-hosts of that podcast. They were interviewing recently uh, a hip-hop artist, a Grammy Award-winning hip-hop artist named Lecrae. Um, He's actually playing at the pageant on March 19th. Um, Go see him. Um, But uh, Lecrae was talking about his experience in the church. Now, Lecrae is a very deeply devoted Christian. um, And for many, many years, he's been a darling of the white evangelical church. They've loved him and they've embraced him. They've gone to see his shows um, until he started speaking out about Mike Brown. And then all of a sudden, people started questioning his orthodoxy. They stopped coming to his shows, all because he was talking about racial issues in the church. He got dismissed. He got disowned. It broke my heart to listen to this interview. And listen, it's not just racial issues in the church. Um, Women have been treated horribly by the church, they've been marginalized, they've been abused. Sexual minorities have been treated abominably by the church for centuries. They have been oppressed, they have been attacked, they have been persecuted. We have to look at the hypocrisy and the moral failure that exists in this church. If we're not honest about it, we're done for. For instance, you know, um, I think that um, the only way we're really going to address this is by owning and repenting and being honest about the hypocrisy and the moral failure that really exists in the church. In fact, let me tell you a little secret about how to do this. Um, We'll actually talk more about this in a little bit, but only Christianity gives you the real resources that you need to address hypocrisy and moral failure, not just in the church, but in your own lives. Because if your identity and your security in this world depends on your moral performance, on being seen as a good person, then, then looking at your failures, looking at the sin and hypocrisy in your own life is going to be way too threatening. You'll never be able to do it. But if your ultimate security and identity rests, not in your performance, but in Jesus's performance for you on the cross, that gives you the foundation for an identity that is secure enough to face the worst things about yourself without being crushed by them. Okay, So the first thing we see here is there is a problem. We have to address the hypocrisy and moral failures of the church. But next we see the wrong solution to this problem. Let's go back to our objection. People say, look, the church is filled with hypocrisy. The church is an agent of injustice and oppression. Therefore, the only solution that has any integrity, the only solution that makes any sense is to abandon Christianity and get rid of the church. I want to show you that that is the wrong solution. First of all, throughout the whole Bible, there is a constant critique and condemnation of hypocrisy, false religiosity, injustice, and oppression in the church. Yes, the Bible has things to say to the world, but by far the strongest and most powerful critiques and condemnations that you will see in the Bible are leveled against the church itself. In other words, there is no condemnation anyone can bring against the church that the Bible hasn't already beaten you to the punch. The Bible itself condemns hypocrisy in the church. This whole passage that we just read is all about James calling the church to account for its uh, discriminatory practices. And that leads to the second reason that abandoning Christianity is the wrong solution to hypocrisy and moral failure in the church. Because when we condemn the church... um, what criteria do, I, do we use to condemn it? What are we actually condemning the church for? Well, I mean, just to name a few things, uh, the church oftentimes fails to uh, treat other people with dignity. Um, uh, sometimes you'll see the church I- I- is unjust. They fail to stand up for the rights and the needs of the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. Uh, we condemn the church for oppression, not just failing to stand up for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized, but actively harming the weak, the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Think about these things. What, what are these criteria that we use to judge the church? Human dignity, injustice caring for the poor, standing up for the weak and the marginalized, a sense of justice that works for equity and works against power imbalances in society. Those are the criteria we use to judge the church. In other words, our criteria are all the values that our modern, Western, liberal, um, enlightened world would say form the basis and are absolutely crucial for a just, humane, and tolerant society. Now, here's the question where do those values come from? They come from the Bible, they come from Christianity. Now, many people might push back hard on that and say that's ridiculous. Uh, These values are in our culture uh, because they've evolved over the course of history as human societies have evolved. Um, we've become more just and humane, especially since the Enlightenment when we started to get rid of superstitious religious beliefs and embrace things like science and reason. We've begun to embrace things like uh, tolerance and freedom and human rights and democracy. Now, that is a very popular narrative, but it's mistaken. Read Frederick Nietzsche. Not only was he one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, he's one of the greatest historians who ever lived, and he was an atheist, um, he points out that ancient moral systems, okay, uh, the moral systems that were in place when the Bible was written, ancient moral systems were built around things like pride, honor, strength, toughness, and preserving authoritarian power structures, okay? That was considered morality and goodness in the ancient world. On, in contrast to that, Nietzsche says that the Christianity introduced a new moral system, that was built around things like humility, compassion, caring for the poor, and correcting um, power imbalances in society. He says those things are actually in our society because of Christianity, and it's not just Nietzsche. There are many, many other scholars and philosophers and historians who point out the same thing, and many of them are atheists too. It's not like they have an agenda to defend Christianity. They're just being honest about history. And the reality that that the only reason our modern society values things like tolerance and freedom and inclusion and human rights and caring for the poor is because they come to us from Christianity. And when you look at our passage, that's exactly what you see. If you look at verse 5, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And he's saying God chooses the poor. In a society that exalts the rich and the powerful, God exalts the poor. I mean, these are Christian concepts. Do you realize what this means? It means that the only way we can criticize Christianity is by using Christian categories. Therefore, if you want to get rid of Christianity, you also have to get rid of the very standards by which you would judge Christianity. Listen, we have to be honest In our criticism of the church, we must be honest about the hypocrisy and the moral failure that exists inside of the church. But if your solution is to get rid of Christianity, it boomerangs back on you because you're getting rid of the very thing that you would use to judge the church in the first place. It's the wrong solution. Well, that leads to the third thing that we see here. We've seen the problem and we've seen the wrong solution. But next, what is the right solution? James shows us in verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, it's a strong statement. He's saying that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, then you cannot act this way. It's inconsistent with your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's calling Christians not to abandon their faith, but to get deeper into their faith. In fact, it's even stronger than that. Um, If we were to translate verse 1 literally, it's a little awkward in the English, but literally what James says in verse 1 is, My brothers and sisters, do not in favoritism hold to the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he talks about, about holding on to the faith and how we hold our faith. James is saying that the real solution to hypocrisy, injustice, And oppression in the church is not to abandon faith in Jesus, but to hold on to it more tightly. Not to let go of it, but but to get a better grip on it, to cling to it more tightly. You know, sometimes people might say, okay, maybe we don't need to get rid of Christianity and religion altogether. But it's these extreme forms of faith that are the real problem. If people could just learn to be more moderate in their faith be so extreme about it. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. Let's just not be too extreme about it. James is saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying the only way to overcome hypocrisy and moral failure in the church is not to loosen your commitment to Jesus, but to strengthen it, to get even more committed to it. You know, we print a reflection quote in our bulletin um, every week, and the quote we printed this week is from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. That book has actually been one of the primary resources that's helped me as I've been preparing for this series. Um, In the quote, if you want to turn to your bulletin, you can even look at it. But here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. In fact, he gives some wonderful examples of it in his book. One of them is um, when Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail, uh, some white Southern Christian leaders Criticized him uh, because they didn't like the way that he was responding to segregation in the South. They felt that Martin Luther King Jr. was too extreme, he was too radical. So it's interesting how he responded to this. Read his letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, What was Martin Luther King's solution to segregation in the South? Uh, He did not tell those white Christian leaders to get more secular. He did not tell them to abandon Christian principles that were failing. He did not say, you know what, everybody has to figure out what's right and wrong for themselves. Who's to say what's true and what's false? Who's to say what's right and wrong? He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but what he said is, you know, people call me an extremist. But wasn't Jesus an extremist for love when he said, love your enemies? Wasn't the biblical prophet Amos an extremist for justice when he said, let justice roll down like water? Wasn't the apostle Paul an extremist for the gospel when he said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus? Martin Luther King said the solution to segregation is not to abandon Christianity, but to get deeper into it, to get more fully committed to it, to get more extreme about it, not less extreme. And that's exactly what James says in this letter. At the end of the passage, he even gives us a case study. He says, imagine that you see somebody who's naked and starving. You know, what are different Christian responses to that? He says, a moderate Christian, a lukewarm Christian, they might do something like just say a blessing over that person. Oh, you poor, starving, naked person, be warmed and well-fed. A a, a pious, moralistic Christian might just pray for the person, may God bless you and take care of you. James says a real Christian is actually going to take care of their physical needs. They won't just say a blessing over them. They won't just pray for them. They'll actually do something about it. And in verse 17, he said, that's what faith means. If you want to have faith in God, you actually take care of the physical needs of those who are starving, poor, and naked, and hungry. Friends, if you're here this morning... And you're not a Christian, and, and maybe you're exploring faith, maybe you're skeptical, but you're hearing, you're checking it out, you're looking into it. L- listen to me, you are right to see horrible things in the church. You are right to see hypocrisy and moral failure in the church. It's there, but if you try to use the failures of the church as a basis to reject faith in Jesus, it can't be done. It's not a basis for rejecting faith in Jesus. It's not a valid grounds for rejecting faith. Martin Luther King would tell you the same thing. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, friends, this is an indictment. This is a call to repentance. We should be on our knees because of this. There is no triumphalistic response to this, only a humble response. And that leads right to our last point. We've seen the problem. We've seen the wrong solution. We've seen the right solution. But lastly, we need to see where do we get the power For this solution because here's the question what will really heal the hypocrisy and the moral failure in our hearts what's really going to change us the reality is that every single one of us is morally compromised in one way or another so the question is what's really going to set things right in our lives how are we really going to find healing for the hypocrisy and moral failure In our lives, we just said that the right solution to hypocrisy in the church is not to abandon Christianity, but to get more deeply committed to it. Okay, what does that actually look like? You know, one of the problems, especially if you're exploring faith in Christianity, is that it's easy to think that Christianity is just like any other religion. You know, I I talk to a lot of people about. God and spiritual things. I'm a pastor. It's one of my privileges. I get to talk to people. I ask people this question all the time. It's one of my favorite questions. Hey, tell me, what do you think the purpose of religion is? How is religion supposed to function in our lives? By far the most common answer I get to that question is people will say that the purpose of religion is to teach us how to be better people and make the world a better place. In other words, many people say that religion is a system of moral self-improvement, people, that religion says, here are the rules, here are the moral principles, have at it, do, do a good job, <laughs> be a good person, and God will love you and accept you. Of course, you're not going to do it perfectly perfectly. But, but as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're going to be, oh, fine. Just try as hard as you can to be the best person that you possibly can. That's the way religion works. It's a system of moral self-improvement. Now, if you take that definition, if you take that lens and you apply it to Christianity in the Bible, what happens? You're going to pick up the Bible and you're going to say, ah, the rule book. You're going to open it up and you're going to look at its pages and and what are you expecting to find using that lens? You're expecting to find moral heroes, moral examples who are there to show you how to live a good life so that you can achieve salvation. If you bring that lens to Christianity and to the Bible, of course you're going to be disappointed. Of course you're going to be outraged because before you ever see hypocrisy in the church, you're going to see it in the Bible. Before you ever see moral failures in the church, you're going to see them in the Bible itself. When you look at the Bible, what do you see? Moral heroes? No. I mean, Noah gets drunk. Abraham offers his wife to be abducted twice in order to save his own skin. Jacob is a liar and a cheat. Samson is a dysfunctional sex addict. David is an adulterer and a murderer. His son Solomon is a womanizer and an idolater. I mean, um, Peter betrays Jesus. Even Paul, the great apostle Paul, was an abusive bully who went around out of his way looking for people to put in jail. He was a murderous bully. He says, I am the chief of sinners. When you look at the Bible, you do not see moral heroes. You see moral failures. And that's the point yes, the Bible gives you moral principles to live by. Of course it does. But on page after page after page, you see failure after failure after failure. Are you starting to get the message? The message of the Bible is not a triumphal tale about moral heroes who show you how to live a good life so that you can achieve salvation. The message of the Bible is a tragic tale about moral failures who show us our desperate need of redemption. That's the message. The message of the Bible is, yes, here are all these moral principles. Here's the way you're supposed to live, but you can't. You never have, you never will, but there is one who did live this way for you, in your place, and on your behalf. Where are you going to get the power you need To live lives of beauty and justice and and righteousness and holiness. What's going to really change your heart? What's really going to deal with the hypocrisy and moral failure in your heart? Not more instructions. That will just crush you. You don't need more instructions. What you need is a new identity. And that's what the Bible gives you. Before the Bible ever gives you more instructions on how to live... It gives you a new identity out of which you live. What do I mean by that? If you look at verse 7, notice James talks about the noble name of him to whom you belong. You know what he's talking about there? Who's this noble name that he's talking about? It's Jesus. In fact, literally what James says is the noble name by which you were called. He's saying that to be a Christian does not mean someone who has adopted a system of moral self-improvement. To be a Christian is to be someone who's called by a new name. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, in ancient Rome, you know, they had a system of adoption, Um, but it was different than our modern-day system of adoption because in, in ancient Rome, in that society, it wasn't just children who would get adopted. Very often, very frequently, adults would get adopted. And in that system of adoption, what happened was if you got adopted, it didn't matter who you were, didn't matter where you came from, didn't matter what had happened to you, it didn't matter what you had done, didn't matter if you were poor or a slave or destitute, if you were a moral wreck or a failure or a social outsider, none of that mattered. When you got adopted, you got a new name, you got a new identity. And everything that was true of your adoptive parent, everything that belonged to your adoptive parent, now was true of you and belonged to you. You got a new identity. You got a new status. And you did nothing to earn it, nothing to achieve it. It was simply bestowed on you by grace. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the gospel. Before it gives you new instructions, it gives you a new identity. Before it ever tells you, here's what you must do, it says, here's what has already been done for you by Jesus. In a way, you could say that the gospel is the ultimate role reversal. For instance, if you look back at verse 5, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? That's very interesting. Notice what he's doing here. He's taking an economic situation, material poverty, And he's applying it spiritually to our lives. In fact, he's pointing back to something he said earlier in chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, James says, Let the poor person boast in his high position, and the rich person boast in his low position. Let the poor person boast in his high position, and let the rich person boast in his low position. It's an amazing statement. He's talking about Christians who are economically either poor or rich, and then he's saying something about their spiritual condition. In other words, if you use the moral improvement lens and that's the way you look at Christianity, then, then you're going to say, look, if you're a good person, God loves you. You're in a high position. But if, if you're a bad person, then God rejects you. You're in a low position. In the moral improvement lens, you're either high or low. Or you're low, but you're never both. Christianity says, no, no, you're always both. You're always both. Look at what James says. He says to the poor Christian, even though in the world's eyes you're a nobody, you're in a low position. He says, in in Jesus, you're somebody, you're in a high position. And then he turns around to the rich Christian, and he says, even though in the world's eyes you're a somebody, you're in a high position, apart from Jesus, apart from his work on your behalf, you would be a nobody. You would be in a low position. He's saying every Christian is both high and low. We're all low because every single one of us is a moral failure and desperate need of redemption, but we're all high because in Jesus, we've actually received that redemption. You get called by a new name. Your position in the world means nothing, but your position in Jesus means everything. Friends, that is why Christianity is completely different from every other religion in the world. The essence of Christianity is not you working hard on yourself in order to be a good person so that God will love you because of what you do. The essence of Christianity is that God loves you and accepts you because of what Jesus has done for you. That's the essence of Christianity. You get his noble name so that all of his perfection, all of his beauty, all of his glory, that gets credited to you, while all of your sin and your failure and your imperfection gets credited to him. It's the ultimate role reversal. How does that happen? The Bible says that Jesus has the name that is above every single name. In fact, it's it's kind of amazing. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He's talking about how Jesus from all eternity had the position that is above every position because he's God. He has the glory that's above all glory. He has the beauty that's above every beauty. Jesus is the ultimate exalted one. He's in the ultimate high position. But he says that on the cross, the one who had the ultimate high position took the lowest of the low positions. He took the position of a servant on the cross. And that because he did that, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord don't you see Jesus had the high position but on the cross he took the low position so that we who are in the low position could receive his high position Jesus lost his name his noble name his ultimate name so that you could receive a new name so that you could receive a new identity a new position a new status. That means that for the Christian, the way to deal with the hypocrisy and moral failure in your heart, the way to truly change is not simply to try harder, not simply to work on yourself, not simply to work really hard on being a better person, Of course being a Christian means that you will grow in character, that you will grow in integrity, that you will grow in moral beauty. Of course it means those things. But but the way you do that is not by working harder on yourself, but by getting deeper into the identity that Jesus has given you. Only if you know that you are already secure in Jesus Only if you know that will you ever be able to look at all the failures and the moral ugliness that's in your lives. And only if you see the beauty of what Jesus has done for you and the love that he's poured out for you on the cross, only then, only that will change your heart. Only then will you be able to to live out of that new identity, that new status, that new position that you have, to begin living out of that identity instead of living for an identity. That's how the gospel changes your life. Do you know that you need redemption this morning? You know, for poor people, it's not that hard. They know what it is to be in need. But for middle-class people, oftentimes we tend to be middle-class in spirit. You know, wait, me in need? I worked hard to get where I am. What are you talking about? Uh, How dare you suggest that I would be in need? So often, we're middle class in spirit. Listen, if needing redemption, if the idea that you need redemption is offensive to you, not only will you remain blind to your moral failures in your life, but you will remain lost to God. Are you willing to give up your good name in order to get the noble name, the exalted name that Jesus gives to you? The key to dealing with hypocrisy in the church, moral failure in the church, is not to reject the gospel, but to embrace the remedy, the sweet, blissful antidote that only the gospel can provide. Let's pray.